the National Archives podcast series, The Making of the Stalinist State, 1928-1941, presented by Dr. Jane McDermid, the University of Southampton. This is part one of a two-part series. Now, in this talk, um, I'll be examining the arguments between what's often called the totalitarian model of the Soviet Union um, in the 1930s, which is that the events of that decade, um, and in particular the purges, and of course in particular the Great Terror, thinking of 37, 1937 to 1938, that they were the logical and necessary outcomes of Bolshevism. Between that model and what's called the revisionist um, interpretations, revisionists tend to focus instead on social, economic, and institutional uh, factors. So the totalitarians are much more on ideology and politics. The totalitarian model then focuses on Lenin's legacy, and that's the, the first point there. And it's reflected in Alec Nob's very famous question, which I think is, is still pertinent. First asked in 1964, was Stalin really necessary? Now, what Alec Nov was referring to was the notion that Stalinism was built on foundations laid by Lenin, that Stalin was Lenin's inevitable, even if not his immediate successor, that Lenin had left this one-party state, that it was a party in which factions had been banned as early as 1921. It was a party which had um, been prepared to use terror as a tactic against its opponents from the beginning. It's a party which, against the odds, survived a civil war and a war, however brief, of foreign intervention. And even before his death in January 1924, there was a cult of Lenin developing, which very quickly became the benchmark for his successor's legitimacy. And you'll see some uh, quotations there in point one. Ronald Sunni says that association with Lenin more than any past service gave a political leader legitimacy and authority in the post-Lenin years. James White says that whereas Stalin didn't create the cult of Lenin, Leninism became a very convenient vehicle for Stalin's political thinking. Stalin gave a series of lectures on the foundations of Leninism, and every statement he made he supported with a quotation from Lenin. The quotations were actually usually irrelevant and out of context, but it's not something that you would do in your essays, is it? Stalin then simplified Lenin's ideas for the ordinary party membership. And there's a very brief quotation from Beryl Williams. Leninism became a compulsory part of the curriculum and interpreting it became a major industry with enormous implications. Terror then didn't originate with Stalin, but he greatly intensified it and more than that, he institutionalized it. Beginning in 1928, his revolution from above in the economy, you know, that's, of course, the five-year plans for industry and the collectivization of agriculture, 
that that revolution depended on the use of terror. Though, of course, it, it's not only terror that it depended on, but that was crucial. With the first five-year plan, the communist bureaucracy grew enormously. So did the system of forced labor. And that, in turn, made necessary a huge growth of the political police. If you look at point two, you'll see a reference to Alexander Chubarov, who argues that forced labor acquired massive proportions, turning into a major factor of economic development. Now, there is actually disagreement about just how central forced labor was to the economy. But there's general agreement that it caused enormous suffering. It was organized in the networks of camps and settlements run by the chief directorate of reformatory camps, known by the Russian acronym GULAG. Though it was kept as secret as possible, um, Stalin believed it was totally justified. Because, of course, he maintained that from a position of backwardness, he was trying to catch up with the advanced capitalist countries. And that because the Soviet Union was effectively under siege from those same hostile powers, he had to catch up with them in record time. He insisted that the speed and the methods used in transforming the economy were necessary if the Soviet Union was to survive. So it is about basic survival. There was, he claimed, no alternative. Now, Roy Medvedev um, highlights the drawbacks of this um, forced labor system. What Roy Medvedev is um, arguing for, and notice that this is from 1971. It's when Roy Medvedev, who'd been a member of the Communist Party and whose father had actually been purged um, in the terror, that at this stage he's left the party and he's written a book published in the West about the purges called Let History Judge. Medvedev highlights how wasteful forced labor was. And there's a very chilling phrase there that it used up labor quickly and how the logic of that was to arrest more and more people. So it's kind of it, you know, a circular um, development. Now, one view of the Stalinist state, this is the totalitarian model, um, held by writers, very prominent writers, such as Robert Conquest, is that the purges were actually the logical and even the necessary outcome of Bolshevism. Now, this is a school of thought that emphasizes continuity with Lenin. Lenin, of course, in this school of thought, is charged with giving Stalin the organizational means to impose the terror. And more than that, giving Stalin the ideological justification for terror. The totalitarian view dismisses or reduces responsibility on the part of local officials. You know, what conquest would argue is, well, if they didn't do as they were ordered, they too would be purged. Now, you see in point three that later historians, um, such as G.T. Rittersporn, were influenced by structuralist interpretations of Nazi Germany. And, of course, the famous historian there is Ian um, Kershaw. The structuralist interpretations focused attention on social, economic, and institutional factors rather than 
ideology and personality. And this, of course, is highly influential for religionists. And it's interesting that while the totalitarian model is often associated with conservative historians, their focus on personality actually had attractions for the left. And this was very convenient for the left. Now, among the leading um, revisionists is John Arch Getty. And along with Roberta Manning, he edited a book, a book called Stalinist Terror in 1993. And this is a quotation that you'll find there from, uh, from Getty. For Trotskyists, blaming Stalin was very useful because it explained their political defeat. For Leninists... <coughs> Blaming the personal um, factor on Stalin allowed them to say that Leninism actually had been perverted by Stalin. For Western le leftists, the cult of Stalin permitted one to save socialism and say Stalinism was not an inevitable outcome. And for many others, it just provided a gigantic evil figure akin to Hitler or Genghis Khan whose deeds sufficed to explain everything without the necessity of detailed historical analysis. Now, that quotation from one of the leading revisionists is also, of course, an argument against Robert Conquest's view as seeing terror as a single phenomenon. Conquest tends to put forward the view that the terror was a centralised, planned, coherent policy. Writing after the Soviet archives had been opened up, and of course they, they were being opened up from the late 1980s, Getty again pointed to the complexities and the contradictions of the structure of Stalinist politics. Getty believes that the localities played a big part in the terror. And he holds out that there were many little Stalins with lots of power, not only implementing Stalin's orders, but interpreting them. And that, of course, is a general argument about dictators, is they can dictate all they like, but their policies have to be put into practice. And the other argument, of course, is about the size of the Soviet Union. Could Stalin have complete control uh, over that? Another leading revisionist historian, uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick, has also found evidence of what she calls this decentralization of the terror. Fitzpatrick argues that policy under Stalin was often improvised in the face of particular problems or crises, rather than being elaborated by ideology, although ideology was often used after the fact to explain what Stalin had done. Terror was planned from the center, but it was also arbitrary, as was so much else in the 1930s. Indeed, those who supported and benefited from Stalin's policies could also be punished. You know, as you know, many of those who were at the center of the terror also became victims of the terror um, when he changed tack or when he was looking for a scapegoat. Now, historians have looked to the opening of the archives since the late 1980s to resolve this debate between totalitarians and revisionists, but it has not. For example, Getty claimed 
that his recent research in the Soviet archives upheld his claim that the local authorities had played a large part in the purges. Ronald Sunni, however, has admitted that his recent archival research actually resulted in shifting his focus, that he was now more convinced that Stalin did have an absolute grip on power. And as you'll see in point four there, a specialist study by David Norlander of Magadan, you know, which is called a Gulag capital, in the 1930s supports Ronald Sunni's view that Stalin remained in control. So the archives can be open, but it is again up to historians to interpret what they actually see there. Sunni then and Norlander can be seen as shifting towards the totalitarian argument. There are, of course, historians who are in neither camp, and you'll see some in point five. Stephen Kotkin, for example, criticizes the totalitarians because he says they write about the great terror as if it was largely without process, you know, as if one man is ordering it and it just happens as, as he says. But Kotkin is also critical of revisionists like Getty and Fitzpatrick. Kotkin points out that opening of the archives has been too partial. It also, of course, um, since the mid-1990s, has been closed again. Certain of the archives have been closed. Not all of the secret police archives are opened. I don't know if you saw it, but there was a report in the Guardian newspaper in July of this year which said that um, certain archives, which are to do with um, what happened to number of victims of the purges, are to be open to the families of the victims and nobody else. And unlike here, they are not um, actually catalogued. It's going to take a long time to look through those. So the archives then have been opened, but it's arbitrary and it's partial, and it's not always open, um, particularly to Western historians. Kotkin says that Getty is precipitate in saying that the archives prove there was a centre-periphery struggle. They don't disprove it, but you can't be definite about it. The opening of the archives has provided a lot more detail on the Stalin period. It has revealed aspects and operations of the purges which were previously unknown. But again, as I said earlier, it's historians who interpret the sources. They do not speak for themselves. So far, the totalitarian school has proved much less willing to modify its arguments than the revisionists. Um, notably Sheila Fitzpatrick, who has admitted now very openly that she dismissed the ideological aspects of Stalinism too easily. Now, another thing about the revisionists, of course, is that they are above all social historians, and the totalitarians focus on politics and ideology. The totalitarians also focus on individuals, on personality, Lenin and Stalin in particular. And one argument, one criticism of that is that it tends to cut the Soviet period off from any czarist roots, 
from any pre-revolutionary influences, which so social historians argue is mistaken. Stalin himself, after all, resurrected a number of czarist symbols. And the practice of the cult of the personality may be seen to have czarist origins. However, a 2003 edited collection called Stalin's Terror, this is point six there, edited by Barry McLaughlin and Kevin McDermott, a different McDermott, shows limitations of the social historian's explanations. That collection reveals that repressive policies were indeed carefully planned by a small group. This is the group whose names with which you'll probably be familiar, Yezhov, Malatov, Kaganovich, Varashilov, and of course Stalin. Stalin remained the dominant figure in that group. The editors agree with Stephen Kotkin that since the tightening of control over the archives from the mid-1990s, most foreign scholars get limited access at most to the most sensitive archives. Some of the contributors to Stalin's terror emphasize the signal role played by the central party and secret police leaders in organizing and overseeing the mass repressions of 1937-38. Other contributors speculate on the input of local and regional secret police bosses, and they touch on the sensitive topic, which is still very sensitive, about popular participation in the purges. As the subtitle of Stalin's Terror shows, the subtitle is High Politics and Mass Repression in the Soviet Union. That subtitle suggests that the collection as a whole favors the totalitarian view. What the editors say is, the dominant interpretation is that the Great Terror was carefully planned, was carefully coordinated and executed by the Stalinist political and secret police leadership as a program of extermination of clearly defined targets, the whole process being overseen by Stalin himself. At the same time, the editors show that the terror was not a unitary phenomenon. The internal context includes a shift of power away from the Communist Party, but not from its general secretary, away from the party to the NKVD, and that that was at its strongest under Yezhov, 1937 to 1938. But of course, you all know the fate of Yezhov, who was himself purged and was shot the following year. This event was recorded live at the National Archives at Kew on November the 15th, 2007. This event is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>